Hi there. Thank you for listening to Spotless, breaking the boundaries of television. The world of TV and advertising is evolving quickly. The largest content creators, distributors, and brands are all vying for new ways to engage the next generation of viewers. Presented by two media powerhouses, Triple Lift and Advertising Week, Spotless brings you in-depth conversations with the leaders who are driving this evolution. Consumer behaviors of the next two years will decide the winners and losers of the next two decades. Now here's our host, Michael Shields, GM of Advanced Advertising at Triple Lift. Dr. Dwayne Varon is CEO of Media Science, a global pioneer in lab-based research integrating biometrics, facial coding, eye tracking, reaction time testing, and other new advanced methods in better understanding the emotional dimensions of people's media encounters. Dr. Varon was formerly Chief Research Officer at the Disney Media and Advertising Lab. He is the recipient of a number of awards, including the Australian Prime Minister's Award for University Teacher of the Year, which is a spectacular accolade. Uh, Dr. Varan, we are super excited to, to welcome you to Spotless. Thanks for joining us today. It's a great joy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So, Doctor, could you tell our audience, just to uh, provide a little background, your path to CEO of media science and, and leading uh, uh, media science? Well, um, you know, I, I was an academic once upon a time. <laughs> and uh, uh, the, the area that I specialized in um, was, uh, you know, across media and marketing, um, you know, how do we best measure um, people's journeys in those, in, in those encounters? How do we best journey how a person experiences a program or how a person experiences an ad? And I was leading a team which was multidisciplinary, so people from different disciplines coming together, trying to understand uh, how to do that best. We had our own flagship research center. I had my own building on campus. You know, it was a, a really successful research enterprise at the university. And um, the, the, the conclusion you come to very quickly, if that's your research focus, is, is a problem, a fundamental problem, which is at the core of all media and advertising research. And that is this, that fundamentally, we are interested in people's emotional journeys. At the core of everything, we want to know something about how people experience content at an emotional level. But the problem is that people fundamentally lack access to their own emotional journey. If I ask you about anything to do with how you are experiencing a show or an ad or anything like that, what you are giving me is the rational interpretation of your emotional journey what you think you must be experiencing, which it turns out is actually very different to how people are really experiencing something at an emotional level. So what we pioneered at my research center was, well, how do we then more directly measure human emotion so that we're not dependent upon what people say, but we can actually measure that more directly. So um, of course, once you start doing that, you can get to very invasive measures. So a lot of our early research, for example, used facial electromyography, which was wires on the face. So we had to actually put people in a room where we attached wires and sensors on their face, which is very invasive, you know, not comfortable. So we really wanted to pioneer 
non-invasive ways of, of measuring human emotion. And so that led to, instead of putting wires on the face, let's use software to analyze features on the face and translate those to the underlying muscle movement. And likewise, we put sensors on the fingers, which are very non-invasive. People didn't mind that. Looking at their heart rate activity, looking at their galvanic skin response, we track their eye movement to look at what they're looking at on screen. So now we end up with a whole range of measures that can explore the emotional journey more directly without being dependent upon people's access to it through uh, stated response. So um, we had built this research center and it was really exciting pioneering these new methods. And then one day out of the blue uh, in 2008 on Mother's Day, I got a call from uh, the Disney Corporation and they said, Dwayne, we, we know your research, we're interested in research. In four days, we're gonna announce the launch of a lab at the upfront, the Disney lab, and we want you to run it. Um, so we have four days to negotiate a deal with you. And I was like, I don't even have a lawyer. And they said, well, you better get a lawyer. So I made these demands that I thought were just impossible. You know, uh, I don't wanna be your employee. It would have to be an independent business. I would have to own it. I don't have any money, you'd have to fund it. I, I still want to live in Australia. At the time, I still wanted to be an academic. Eventually, I couldn't juggle both, but at that time, I, that was one of my... They said, not a problem. Everything I asked for, they said, okay. They said, but we have one condition. You have to be exclusive to Disney. So for our first five years as media science, we were exclusive to Disney. And then once we came out of exclusivity, we began growing and expanding. And of course, that meant that ultimately, I couldn't juggle both roles. So I had to leave academia and go full-time into media science. So there are there's so much to unpack about the approach that, that, that you take it at media science. And I want to start walking through essentially what you just described there of how we have emotional measurement oriented metrics that ultimately the thing that marketers are interested in is how those tie or could be validated in terms of traditional marketing funnel metrics. So I, we're going to get to that in a sec. But First, I want to broadly ask you, just taking a step up here, right? You often talk about the need to shift the research paradigm. And in some instances, have used words such as antiquated to talk about some of the TV measurement paradigm. So I wonder if we might take that as a starting point, right? Like, really, what do you look at and define as that TV research paradigm? And then how do you see it evolving? What are the kinds of well, things? Uh, the, uh, the exciting news for us is that um, there's so many tools that are at our disposal today. Like we're, we're not living in a universe anymore where we're dependent upon having, you know, 3000 people represent the entire country for everything to do with all measures, you know, like, like that's a different era. Um, and uh, the, the fundamental problem that we have is that, you know, we used to live in a world where we had imperfect measures, but for the sake of the common currencies we need to trade with, we all had to believe that those measures represented something meaningful that we could trade on. And they did represent something meaningful. It's not that they didn't represent, uh, you know, that they, that they represent nothing. I mean, it's, it's, it's better than nothing for sure, but let's not pretend that we're looking at, you know, the voice of God. I mean, this is not, this is not truth. This is just something that we, we needed to, to trade with effectively. And so we have these, these measures, which are 
very crude measures, and which, by the way, don't actually translate into uh, a prediction or ultimate success. So when you look at the track record for media and advertising research, it's not a good track record. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we predict shows are going to succeed, they fail. We predict ads are going to be successful, they're not. You know, like, like the track record has not been good, but we all need measurement to trade with. And so we've, we, we've lived with it. Um, one of the studies that we did for Mars was really interesting because um, Mars is unique. Not a lot of advertisers have what we call single source data, which is tracking the same people from media exposure to actual purchase and consumption. And they have, and it's very expensive data to, to collect. It's not, a, it's, it's not an easy enterprise that just anybody could do, but they have great single source data. And um, we were blind to their single source data. So we did not know which ads were successful or which ads were not successful. Um, you can't pick them, by the way. If you look at two M&M ads, one of them translated into lots of sales, the other one didn't. You could not guess which one it is. Like it's not, the, the art is not that simple, right? So yeah, we had exactly. these, we had over 100 ads. We were blind to them. We tested them. And then we had to report what we thought their market impact would be across four buckets, hugely successful, you know, moderately successful, moderately unsuccessful, hugely unsuccessful. Um, and um, survey data was only slightly better than chance at actually picking success. Now that's a scary, that's a very scary thought that we live in a multi-billion dollar industry where we're largely trading on chance or slightly better than chance. In other words, we could save all those billions of dollars just by flipping a coin. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and the biometric measures significantly improved that. So we went from 50, I don't know what it was, 54 or something like that, up to like about 70, 74%, something like that. So a marked improvement. This is, by the way, the the subject of an article that that was published that we wrote that that explores that. uh, This was done in collaboration with the Ehrenberg Bass Institute at the University of South Australia. So it's all published and we have that story. But but the the point that I'm really trying to get at is that we have tolerated um, weak measurement in the industry. And there was a time where we didn't have an alternative, but that's not the present. Now we have better tools and we shouldn't limit what we do to the tools that are kind of like most prevalent in the market or most common. Really what everybody should do is figure out what their communication objectives are with their messaging. Um, So for example, uh, you know, this message we want people, we want people to laugh. We want this to be funny. That's one of our objectives. That's a communication objective, or we want people to pay attention. That's a communication objective. So articulate your objective, then find the best in class measure for that method. So if you're interested in humor, the best measure for humor is, is analyzing the movement of your, uh, uh, of your, your, your mouth, of your smiling to the zygmaticus muscle and look and see whether you have smiling activity and you can measure that very precisely. And so that's the best in class measure. If you're interested in attention, you can use heart rate. That's what we use when we're trying to measure attention in infants because they can't articulate. So we can analyze the heart rate behavior. So these measures are much more powerful tools for getting at our real communication objectives. 
When you talk to brands, I imagine you adopt that language. Ultimately, a lot of times when we're doing surveys alongside campaign-based data, we're looking at something, let's say, called brand lift, right? But really, the messaging objectives of the brand are to create an affinity with the consumer along lines, like, let's say, happiness or trust, right? Do you really talk about the granularity of all of those emotions? And I wonder if you might give us a few more like examples of like, how do we track something like trust? Well, trust is hard because trust is actually not one thing. Trust is many things. Um, but um, it, you've actually spoken to the first problem. The first problem with a brand for a brand is, uh, by, and by the way, one of the things which is good news is these don't change because brands are like aircraft carriers. They're not like nimble ships. So once you understand what a brand is really trying to do, you, you have solved the problem, not for one ad, but for hundreds of ads, because for many, 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 probably decades, you know, the, 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 the strategy for the brand will be around those same communication objectives. So that's, you know, but, but still you have to get at that. So the starting point is, what are your strategic objectives, of course, but then how do those strategic objectives translate into communication objectives? So what is it you're really trying to do with your messaging? Now, it could be that what you're trying to do is not effective, right? It could be that you have a strategy that is actually not a good strategy at all, but unless we measure for those communication objectives, you don't know if you're delivering the, uh, to the objective. So you won't know how effective your larger strategy is. So it, it all kind of comes together and then when you're thinking about your communication objectives, you wanna articulate what are the three or four things that we're really trying to do with our messaging? And then you wanna think of it as a toolbox. You don't want it to be about a generic measure that you're always using. You want it to be about which tool is right for the task. And I think that's one of the things that differentiates media science because at media science, we're not evangelists for a method. We're not the, out there saying, you know, it's all about eye tracking. And if you just have eye tracking, that's what you need. We're all about a toolbox, which is about engaging in a dialogue with a brand to understand what it is that their objectives are and then find the right tool. And in some cases, we don't have the right tool. And so we engage in a conversation with the client and we're like, oh, you know, this is what you really need. And we're out there in the world searching for, well, what's the best in class measure? And, and, and oftentimes there's a lot of work that we have to do on our side trying to figure out what the right tool is. So let me just give you an example of that. One of those areas that we find is common for a lot of our clients is um, empathy. And this is particularly the case on the uh, network side of what we do, the TV network side, where we're looking at programs and how to make programs better. Uh, if we're dealing with a comedy, the measures are very easy because comedy is about humor, which we can measure very reliably. But one of the things that is really key to the success of drama is whether you have empathy for the protagonists. And empathy is actually a fairly complex measure in a number of ways. So we do have measures which we've been developing, which is, is really based on the concept of, of mirror neurons, which is how do you see if what one person is experiencing is then being experienced by the other person. And so that's an example. Of course, it's, it's complex because you don't have headsets on actors. And so you don't actually have the reference data that you need against which to talk about what mirror neuron activity you have firing up. So there are some added complexities in trying to figure out how to do that, but that's the idea 
that we're really approaching in terms of how do we get at measuring empathy. So when I think about measuring empathy of the audience for content, one of the ways in which television media has always been purchased is almost under the assumption that there is this empathetic connection between the audience and the programming they're watching. So we've always ascribed Nielsen ratings to particular shows, right? And they're delivering a demo and the stronger the emotional connection of the audience to this programming, the the higher the levels of engagement, the more effective that's going to be for advertising clients. I wonder in your research, have you examined that transfer of the levels of engagement with an audience, right? If we are are selling based on the basis of content, right? Is it delivering the same kind of impact to advertisers? Uh, That's a great question. It's actually very complex uh, because people think more attention is better, but it's not always the case that more attention is better. There are different types of viewing experience. People are on different journeys when they're watching television. Uh, Sometimes they're in a lean forward experience where they're highly engaged in the content that they're seeing. And that transfers to the advertiser. A a really good example is news. A lot of advertisers will not buy news research because they say it's negative and we don't want to be in a negative environment. But actually our research shows that the news environment is actually superior, that advertisers get a better experience in news, a, a more effective experience. And the reason is because when people are watching news, they're highly engaged and their cognitive resources are being actively engaged. And so they're processing what they're seeing very actively. And that is transferring to the advertisers. So the advertisers are benefiting from that. So that's an example where it's true. But conversely, there are often times where you're watching television in a lean back mode, where you're relaxing. And that's a very different kind of engagement. You know, it's not that you're like actively churning away with your, your mind but you're relaxing and ads are also effective in that environment in entirely different ways. So it's not the case that more attention is better, but it is the case that inattention is bad. So attention is more like a threshold that you have to cross. And if you don't cross it, well, you're not gonna have much impact, but just because you cross it, that in itself is not enough. You need more than just getting in the door Uh, And that's where everything else really starts to kick in in terms of the other kinds of measures. So I could get your attention by clapping my hands. I could get your attention by shocking you. I could get your attention by um, uh, sparking your intellectual curiosity. Um, Ultimately, attention is kind of a, a measure of amplitude, right? And then the qualification of that amplitude comes from these other factors. And that happens, by the way, very fast within an ad. Um, we've done a lot of really interesting research, which has demonstrated that the first three seconds in particular of an ad is subconsciously people make a go, no go decision about whether to attend to the ad in that first three seconds. And in fact, it's surprising to us because that process actually starts at the half second mark. So within half a second, people are already making a decision about whether they're going to attend or not attend to the ad. It's, it's, it's a remarkable process. That's fascinating, but also potentially a strong qualifier for things like six second ads that the industry has evolved, right? In shorter formats. Definitely. Um, so we've done a lot of work on short ads, on, on six second ads. I think we really were first to pioneer that, that line. When we began doing that research, there was no six second ad. We actually tested it 
on a seven, which was a cut down from a 15 because it was about half the time. But uh, I digress. But the point of it really was that the reason why a six second ad is disproportionately effective, we find that a six second delivers about 60% of, of the impact of a 30. Uh, of course, it's it's, it's, it's a lot less in terms of a percentage of time, but, but in terms of impact, it's disproportionately large. And the reason is because it includes that, that first three seconds where you're making that go, no go. But the other thing I should also comment on is this idea that, uh, that you have this go, no go decision also explains another huge area of research that we've done, which is uh, brand integrations. Um, and, and why brand integrations are so effective, because brand integrations really are one of the most effective things that you can be doing as a brand. Let's qualify for our audience what brand integrations are. What do you mean by that? So brand integrations are a lot of different kinds of ways that a brand gets into a program. Um, it could be as simple as a product sponsorship. You know, it could be that you are a, a can of Coca-Cola in the background. Or it could be that you're front and center, like as a main character in the story, you know, that, that, that you're essentially woven into the plot. But one way or another, in some way, the brand is being integrated into the narrative. We do a lot of research testing the impact of brand integrations. And, and I love the way that we have done this. And, and, and this is not new. We've done this for the past 12 years. What we do is we take the integration and we create a second version of the program without the integration. So this happens either where we digitally rotoscope the brand out. So there's an episode of a show and a truck pulls up and there's a, a department store brand on the side of the truck. And what we do is we basically Photoshop the brand out so it's just the white truck. Or we do it the other way where there's a white truck and we add the brand to the truck. So what we end up with is two versions of the show, one with the integration and one without the integration. And what we've discovered in our work is that the greatest impact of an integration occurs when um, you have the benefit of an adjoining ad. That means product placement or something like that, brand insertion yeah. into television programming with that working media component. So the brand is also, let's say a sponsor of the show and they appear in the commercial break afterwards. That's exactly right. And, and what we've demonstrated is that the difference, and this is great, by the way, because we demonstrate this biometrically. We demonstrate this with data showing you people's heart rate data, people's galvanic skin response. So you can see exactly how people experience the adjoining ad and the difference when the integration is present versus where it's not present. And this comes back to the go, no go decision where people may make a no-go decision without the benefit of the integration, suddenly they're making the go decision now with the benefit of the integration. So the integration dramatically improves people's receptivity to the advertising. And, and I mean, that's beyond the impact that it has in its own right, which is also of course an effect, but beyond that, the impact on the adjoining ad, which really speaks to the topic you know, that we're discussing around how people engage with the ad. So this has been an exciting, and this has been some of the great work that we've been doing recently with Triple Lift as well, so that we can really understand, you know, what we're moving to with Triple Lift is really getting to, well, what is the rule book around what makes these integrations ultimately effective or ineffective? How do we understand how to make that better? Dr. Varad, as, as always, 
I, I have dozens of questions for every sentence that, that comes out. Um, and one of it, I want to kind of get into integrations a little bit because this has always been a tricky area for marketers. You have noted the impact of integrations in terms of its coupling with working media. Are there specific guidelines that you would give marketers around product placement? One of the things that marketers always think about is, should that integration be passive where characters are not using it, right? Is there a benefit to passive integrations versus active ones that are a part of the script that are being used by characters in the show? Brand integrations are probably the most valuable real estate in the marketing industry going forward. So historically, they've definitely had a value, but as we go forward, they're going to become 10 times more valuable than they are today because the value of your interaction with the consumer has gone up and the advertising landscape is making it harder and harder to have meaningful dialogue with the consumer, you know, uh, a meaningful kind of like impact that way. So brand integrations are going to be a lot more important, but it's surprising how poor the body of research is upon which we are relying. And, and the reason I say poor is because the methods that are being used are wrong. <laughs> you can't ask people about a brand integration. That is... That is just fundamentally flawed. Like you can't say, oh, you see this Coke can in the background here? Let's talk about that. Everything you're getting past that point is just pure garbage. Like you can't engage in that kind of dialogue with consumers. It's not the way the integration works. The integration works in a completely different kind of mode. When you draw active conscious awareness to the integration, you're getting a complete distortion of what that effect is. That, that's the reason why I think that experimental design is absolutely critical to understanding what effect it has, because without that, you're dealing with a pseudo effect. So we're interested in evolving the science of how this works. Ultimately, the thing that's going to pull the science through to more effective forms of advertising are marketing dollars. Uh, traditionally, marketers have been compelled by top of funnel type survey-based metrics. How do you feel about a brand? That question to consumers. And then they've tied it, ultimately they've attributed that increase in feeling, right, to purchase, right? Or to an increase in preference and then, and then purchase, right? So if we're gonna replace that top of the funnel, that survey-based information, um, talk to us a little bit about the correlations that you're finding or the challenges in, in finding those correlations between purchase intents and actual uh, purchase by consumers and that biometric data that you're tracking. You, you can have survey-based measures which are telling you that there is an effect. So that's not the problem. You may not know why the effect was there. You may not understand what it was that was driving the effect, unless you have the granular kind of like second by second data, which is showing you how people are experiencing things. You, don't, you, you could easily misattribute why it's happening. But, but the bigger problem is, even if we say, let's say that we live in a universe where we don't have the benefit of any of these new tools and new measures, and we're left with nothing but survey. Let's just enter into that universe for a second okay. and say that's all we had. So we could still talk about what the aggregate effect was. Did it lift purchase intent? You know, were people more likely to remember the ad? All of that. That's true. However, you still need the benefit of the experimental design because without the experimental design, you don't know that it was the brand integration 
that was delivering the impact. So you still have to have that con control treatment set up, even if what you want to look at is, was there an impact on purchase intent? And, and what you will see is that there is still an incredibly powerful effect with brand integrations a across the board far more frequently than not, we do find that, that there is a significant effect in aggregate, even in our survey data, even if you can't attribute, you know, without the benefit of the additional measures in terms of what it is that's driving that. We've always assumed that consumers could be glutted by things like product placement in television. There's a lot of programming that maybe kind of overdoes it, right, with brands in television shows. Is that a response that you see in the data as well? It can be. Um, so I'll give you an example, again, anecdotally, of something that was a, a massive uh, failure. <laughs> um, so there was a study, and uh, looking at a brand integration, you know, it, it's not the case that you could just say, okay, here you go, put it in anywhere, and, you know, just do something with it, and let's see what effect it has, right? So th this was a talk show. You have a mix of political views somebody who's really conservative, somebody who's really liberal, you know, and they're engaging in a dialogue. We look at the brand integration data and we're, we see a, a, not only a negative effect, a massive negative effect of this integration. Like we haven't seen any data this bad before. And we're like, holy cow, what happened? The, the brand suffered. I mean, the brand has been damaged as a result of this encounter. So what is going on here? So we, we go back and we look at the episode. Of course, we didn't shoot the episode. We're given an episode and we test it. And it turns out the segment immediately before the integration is a segment of this conservative host who is talking about the benefits of torture. So she's going in and saying, look, you know, it's true that we're torturing those people in Guantanamo, that it's delivering us safety, security. This is a good thing. And then, but seriously, today is Earth Day. <laughs> and... There's this great new you know, program, documentary that you should buy, you know, whatever. The shift from torture to Earth Day was so damaging to the brand and to the integration that you saw these negative effects. It's, a, it's an extreme example, but it does, it, it can happen. But that's fascinating because certainly marketers have always tried to stay away from things like moments of violence or, you know, an airplane crash or controversial moments within when they're trying to integrate into television programming. I wonder in the data, is there a, an amount of time in which the audience recovers? What we did is we recut the show. Okay. So we wanted to test whether it was about the integration. So we recut the show or remove that segment and then we tested it. And sure enough, we saw the classic kind of effect that we saw where the, the brand benefited enormously. So yeah, there, there is a lot of, of nuance to it. There's a lot to getting it right, but certainly I think it's a, an under-researched arena given the importance of this format in the new kind of like media and advertising landscape. And certainly there's the opportunity to build a lot of product around that too, which we're really just at the beginning of. So Dr. Varan, you have really blown up a lot of thinking around standards in the industry as well as to help introduce new metrics to define new, new standards. And the, the industry is going through a little bit of an overhaul right now as we, you know, consumer experience goes more towards direct-to-consumer platforms, right? As we move from traditional audiences, a proxy-based linear television sales to data-enabled television sales. From a research perspective, who's doing it right? 
Well, rather than tell you who's doing it right, I want to tell you who's doing it wrong. Okay. Because I, I think that's actually more important. I mean, not identifying anybody specifically, but more broadly in terms of the category. The problem that I have with the new landscape is the minute you start engaging in a dialogue. So, so I have a new tool, let's say, and we're going to call my tool, you know, X. And I've come to you and I've said, I've got this great new measure. The measure is X and X is amazing and X will change your life. And you need X in your in your mix. And, and it looks cool. You know, it's got the eye candy around saying, wow, there's a really cool new thing and all that, right? And you want X. Now, the problem that I have is most people who bring X to market do it black box. So it's it's a proprietary new method. Right. For the sake of protecting our intellectual property, we can't tell you what we're doing or how we do right. it or or something like that. So you just have to trust us. This is a great new measure. And this is particularly the case in the age of AI. AI is amazing, you know, big data is great. It's really powerful, it does a lot of things, but it's also very, very dangerous. And it's dangerous because you don't know what's happening under the hood. You don't know if things are right or if things are wrong. Just because it worked with one data set doesn't mean it's gonna work with the next data set. This black box thing is a problem. Now we don't work with black box. Of course, we like the advantage of being an early mover, but we believe that fundamentally a client has the right to know and needs to know so that they can compare a measure to their other measures in their toolbox. Right. If you don't know what this means relative to everything else, you have no way of being able to properly validate it and weigh it. So what I would say is that for any client in the market, if they're being given a black box, they should reject it. And they should find another measure that can be transparent because without that transparency, you run the risk of, of, of not getting what you think you're getting. That stands to reason, certainly. And one of the things that I find personally appealing about that is that if you're making all of this information available to your clients, then ultimately they can look at some of the correlations with other vendors. One of the things that I always think about when right. we talk exactly. about um, emotional measurement is some of the pioneering work that's been done around sentiment analysis correlated to social media uh, in the television space. I wonder, have you looked at the correlation between things like the emotional measurement and some of the sentiment analysis that we're doing around television programming? We, we have a parallel division in our company, which is our Qualtech division, which is called Park Connect which is a, an amazing new tool for focus group research, um, which brings a lot of new tools to the focus group industry that it hasn't had before. Um, so it does live translation, it does live transcription. You know, it has a lot of these really powerful AI-based tools that it, that, that it brings in. And we haven't released the, the sentiment analysis version of that yet, but we do have one in beta. But uh, again, um, you, you have to put it in a context the reason we like sentiment analysis is because it's giving us valence, but you don't want to live on valence alone. Valence is a great companion metric. It's not a great standalone metric. Let's talk about the, the future, Dr. Veron. You've mentioned a number of very innovative things that, that are happening in the labs at Media Science. When we kind of peek around the corner and think about the next two to three to five years of metrics that we're going to either be able to track or we're going to be able to aggregate and analyze in compelling ways in television. What are the kinds of things media science is planning to bring to market? 
So there are a couple of areas. The first one I think that's really going to explode is the whole qualitative research arena. There has really been a very dramatic, I think, paradigm shift that's been playing out, both with the neuromeasures, but also with, of course, big data. I mean, more so with big data. So you see a lot of change that's been happening. In the qual space, you know, the way that qual groups are done today is not all that different to the way they were done 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. You know, it's, it's a community of people who are very innovative and embraced. But in particular, I think the vendors in the, in the market space have not really been bringing tools to that community. You know, the tools have really been about, you know, the powers in the quantitative arena, much more so than kind of like in the qual arena. So qual has not gone through that kind of revolution that we've seen in other arenas. And I predict that over the next, you know, three years, we're going to see that happen because the qual space can benefit from all these same tools just in different ways. Doctor, you made a mention earlier about context, specifically about news. You alluded to things like comedy, but we really didn't go into it in too much detail. Could you comment on the importance of context and what kinds of different data you see from audiences, this biometric data in those different contexts? Yeah, so context is another one of those arenas, which I think is going to be even more important going forward. Understanding context is going to be much more important going forward. Um, You know, the industry, uh, the advertising industry is really bifurcating into kind of like automated programmatic buying, you know, which will be at the cheap end of the spectrum and kind of like premium buys where, you know, you're making a very deliberate purchase to be in a specific program for a specific reason and at a premium. And as it bifurcates, it's going to be much more important on the premium end to understand context so that we understand how it is that a program ultimately impacts an ad. The general insight of that in the market is, again, simplistic, you know, like I want to be in a good environment, you know, positive, negative. And it's not like that. There's so much complexity, so much nuance, and it, it gets specific to the nature of the content and it gets specific to the nature of the brand. We probably don't have time today to go into all that nuance, but this is another area where we do a lot of research trying to understand those contextual effects. The mention of context, we'd be remiss in this podcast, and we're trying to make a commitment in this podcast to realizing the context in which we're having this conversation, the broader social context. Part of our commitment to our audience, to our industry, is to continue to raise awareness around social justice concerns that have been prevalent across the United States and around the world as of late, specifically the Black Lives Matter movement. If you would indulge us, I'd love to just understand a personal reaction to a lot that's been going on in our country. How do you think about it as a business executive, as an individual, um, as a leader within our industry? I think uh, everybody, wherever you sit in the spectrum, you know, you you have a personal connection with this issue, and you know, it's 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 a I think it's a personal struggle with the issue. You know, what am I supposed to do? Uh, for me personally, it, it's, it is a deep issue. It goes back when I was in college, um, the uh, Virginia Beach riots happened. Uh, it tells you how old I am. That was back in 1999. <laughs> uh, but the Virginia Beach riots happened. And, um, you know, my, my religious background, I'm, I'm a Baha'i. And Baha'i's race unity is one of the core tenets of our faith. So when the Virginia Beach riots happened, my Baha'i club at college said, what are we going to do about this? 
And um, one of the things which is interesting about the Baha'i perspective on racism is it recognizes three victims to racism. There's the immediate victim who we're normally aware of. There's society as a whole, because of course society is being held back from achieving its potential. But it's the third one which most interested us and it's the perpetrator. You don't think of the perpetrator as a victim typically, but in the Baha'i perspective, the perpetrator is a victim because in most cases, they don't mean to hurt other people. It's happening without sensitivity, without awareness. When we talk about racism in America, the core of the problem is not white supremacists. It's not the Ku Klux Klan. The core of the problem is all of us hurting other people, hurting our brothers, our friends, even though we don't mean to, and even though we're unaware that we've done that. And so we created a group, which we called Racism Anonymous. It was a horrible name, <laughs> which the intent was to help people deal with their own prejudices. And, um, and it was a, a great experience you know, for me personally. I learned a lot uh, in that journey. So then of course, when something like, uh, you know, like the, the Floyd situation happens, as a company, you're left with what, what do we do? You know, what should we be doing about this? And of course, we decided the best thing to do was to engage in research. And we have been engaging in research on the topic. Um, how should a brand engage? It's incredibly nuanced and incredibly complex. You know, it's not as simple as saying, ah, oh, let's give a million dollars to a scholarship fund and, and throw something on top of our, our logo that says we did that. And there you go. Or it, it, it doesn't work that way. The audience is reading a lot into what you're doing. Are you appropriating, you know, a movement, you know, to your commercial gain? You know, there's a lot of nuance. And what I would say in terms of um, the success that we've seen, one of the ads that we saw that tested really well was actually an ad for Hulu. And surprisingly, it was not about Black Lives Matter. <laughs> it's an accidental effect. It was actually that time when we were just coming out of, when where it looked like we were coming out of COVID and it looked like it was gonna be, you know, we had just turned the corner before we realized that things were gonna get worse again. And um, the ad was about watching television together again. And as it happened, it featured lots of video of black and white friends watching television together. It wasn't overt, it was subtle, but it was aspirational in its message. Because deep down, a lot of us aspire to helping our friends, our brothers in this. And there was something in that messaging which was resonating with people at that level, both black and white. So what I would say is that the, the lessons of branding don't go away. Branding is not about being on the nose and being overt and saying, here it is, this is an issue. You know, you should buy my product, right? It's about creating a narrative that you enter into. And in the same way, I think dealing with the race issue from the, the limited research we've done is about creating a discourse that you can enter into to aspire to rather than just kind of like trying to take a stand and positioning it and, uh, you know, trying to somehow be perceived potentially as somehow capitalizing on it, So, which is the risk. I think we have a tremendous opportunity in the marketing and entertainment industry to certainly amplify voices amongst us, but a responsibility also to, to maintain that dialogue. Um, one of the hopes that we have and one of the commitments that we're making here on this podcast, right, is to continue that dialogue. 
Are there any other inspirational models of organizations doing that kind of dialogue right or making the right commitments um, that you see out in the marketplace? Well, you know, I also don't want people to get the wrong message. I don't want people to think that because it's hard, it means you shouldn't do it. I think every organization has to grapple with the question. And I think every organization is going to need a unique response that is true to their own DNA. So I think that's actually the challenge of it is, you know, how do we uh, wake up? There's an element of saying, look, this is something that demands our attention. We all need to look at it and we all need to roll up our sleeves and we need to engage in a genuine kind of dialogue around how do we sensitize ourselves um, and, and, and what is the kind of response that makes sense for us? And there won't be one answer for everybody. Everybody's got to grapple with it in terms of what it means, you know, for them. But what hopefully I think the incidents have done for us is help us realize that it is woven in the fabric of our culture. And so we are going to have to take a very active step at trying to figure out how to, how to grapple with it. That's right. We all have a responsibility to address it. And thank you for being so candid and so personal in your response, doctor. We really appreciate you joining us on the show and being able to and willing to engage across a broad array of topics. Thank you so much for the time, Dr. Varan. It was a pleasure. Thanks for the journey. Thank you for listening to Spotless. Be sure to subscribe and come back soon for another conversation about the future of television. For more information, you can connect with us anytime at spotless at triplelift.com.